What's going on, guys? Thanks for hitting that download button and checking out the debut episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, your one-stop shop for toys, tech, and talk with some assembly required. I'm your host, Rich Butler, and my guest for this episode is filmmaker Matt Kaplowitz, who has been a longtime friend of the RageWorks Network and is currently touring the independent film circuit with his latest documentary, Nothing Changes, Art for Hank's Sake. Uh, right now, as of this recording, the show is on its 10, 10th film festival and has also secured the award for best documentary at the Queen's World Film Festival. Matthew not only shares some of the gadgets and gear that he used to film his latest documentary, but also gives us some background into some of the gadgets and gear he used to record his previous documentaries as well. Plus, We take a trip down memory lane talking toys, including the ones that we're currently obsessing over, plus some of the ones we grew up with as well. Without any further ado, here's our interview with Matt Kaplowitz. Enjoy. All right, we are kicking things off with my good friend, editor-in-chief of Nerd News Today and executive producer of Burning Hammer Productions, Matt Kaplowitz. What's going on, my friend? Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me in uh, the Rageworks studio. Very excited to be part of the first show. Yeah, I'm really, really been trying to pin things down with you to do an interview. We've been kind of passing each other like ships in the night to try and get something done, but I'm glad that we actually sat down to do it. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Matt quite a long time uh, from various circles, both in the MMA industry, in the gaming and toy sector, and just being in, in the business in general. And over the years, we've connected and worked on some projects And I'm glad to actually sit down with him and talk about some of the gear that helps him not only create content, but also create great documentaries and films like his latest one, which is Nothing Changes, which is currently doing the awards and indie circuit, correct? Yeah, right now it's in the midst of the Film Fest circuit. So, so far to date, we've done uh, two events. We had our... uh first showing in film fest 52 in connecticut and then that was followed by the queen's world film festival which was actually not that long ago uh that was held at the museum of the moving image uh right next to kaufman Astoria studios and we had a sold out crowd for that one which was really great we had a nearly sold out crowd for the first one but at the queen's world film fest that was totally packed house uh and we ended up getting a nomination uh i got a nomination i guess i should say uh, for best director in a documentary and uh i ended up actually walking away with the best documentary award for the uh, festival uh, so that's pretty cool, and we do have some other festivals coming up. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that stuff later. I'm sure. I am. I'm actually really. I was really excited to see that you won an award for that. You know that this is you know one of the 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 perks of of doing projects like this. Obviously, on top of getting your your dream out there for people to see, you're also you know reaping reaping the benefits. And it it's one of those things that's very tough when you're a creator. And we talk about this off air all the time you know just that recognition that those moments when people are like hey you know this this thing you put out is is badass it's awesome you know we love it and 
you doing the the circuit now with the documentary and hearing that it's it you know you're doing sold out screenings is tremendous man it's a big shock to me i mean the last time i've had anything i've, I've had a few other things out there but that's never been sold out we've had sometimes good houses we'd have sometimes very poor houses i had one film fest a few years ago i did with another movie where we had one person in the audience and that's because i stole that person from another theater and talked him into coming into mine so it's pretty nice to actually have you selling out this thing and i you know i don't really quite know what's different maybe it's just the topic is different maybe it's a little bit more uh, approachable to people now but it's cool this is actually resonating so much with people uh the topic itself the movie and uh it seems to be doing pretty well i'm hoping that again it's it's early on we we're still waiting to hear back from a lot of film festivals i think i'm still waiting to hear back from about like 50 more uh, and that'll be probably until like early october at this point that'll be like the last one i hear back from so basically it'll be a year of film fest and hopefully we get into a lot more hopefully there's more awards but you know that's what matters really just getting this thing seen, having people be aware of it, be aware of the project, be aware of my uncle who's the star of this thing, uh, and just yeah, getting it out there. Well, one of the things you know, I'm 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 glad you you brought up that the the um, the subject of the documentary was your uncle. Um, it was very close to home for you. You you know you put a, a an amazing amount of effort into this, and um, you know I wanted to kind of get into that process because obviously filming in general comes very easy when you've been doing it for so long like you have, but when family's involved, I'm sure it has a different set of challenges and, um, you know, issues on its own. What were some of those challenges that you went through in, in, in creating this late, the, your latest project? Yeah. So, so you guys know, uh, the movie's about my uncle Hank Vergona, uh, and he is 88 years old as of now, 88. We started filming when he was 80. Oh, I guess probably 85 or 86, but it was like the cusp when he's about to get 86. And, um, he is a painter who has a studio in Union Square. He's had it since 1960, and he commutes from his home, Woodhaven, to Union Square, which is, as he's gotten older, a much more difficult kind of task to do. Uh, and the biggest thing with, with getting my uncle on board was honestly just letting him know that this wasn't going to eat up every minute of his time. Uh, when I first pitched this idea to him about two years ago, uh, he was really just not taking it seriously in any way whatsoever. He wasn't really too keen on it. Um, after a few months of wearing him down, we finally talked a little bit more seriously about it, and I went into his studio... And he gave me a piece of paper that he had written down a bunch of names on it. He's like, you see all these names? These are all the people who said they were going to do a video about me or do a documentary about me. They all filmed here or they all did this and that. Nothing came of it. They wasted my time. I'm 86. I don't know when I'm going to go, but I can't be wasting my time on these <laughs> things. And I got to make art because to him, it's like the biggest thing every day is making art. Even right now, he's been going through some medical stuff. And his biggest thing is not that he's in pain or he's feeling lousy, just that he wants to get back to making art. So the real big obstacle was number one, just getting him on board and convincing him that's a whole other long story. <laughs> and then once we actually got him on board, then it was a matter of like getting him comfortable on camera. Because uh, again, it is family and uh, having to open up to a family member about a lot of stuff that most people don't know about him, even family members. It's it's a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, for him, I, I think more so his neighbors in the art studio are more family to him than myself and my actual blood relatives are. Right. Because he spends so much more time with them. Uh, they know him a lot better and they're artists, so they can kind of get him better. Um, so it's just a matter of getting him comfortable talking about this stuff uh, and also just to, I guess, kind of make him be himself on camera because <laughs> he's a guy that's been doing this for a long time and he, he wants to kind of cement a legacy, which he already has. I mean, he's a guy who has work in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He's got stuff in the Smithsonian. He's got things all over in pretty well-known uh, galleries, but not, not many people know who he is. So right. a big part of this is just locking down his legacy and his importance and, uh, in filming originally, like you know, a lot of times he'd start like going on and on and starting to talk all these lofty, pretentious things, and that's not who he is. So it was a matter of just kind of wearing it down, and getting him comfortable enough to actually be himself on camera. Yeah, I think that's that's probably one of the things that 
I'm sure posed some of the biggest challenges because you're you're trying to be a director, but you're also trying to also be a family member at the same time. And I'm sure that line got blurred off when you had to be like, hey, can we redo this shot or or X, Y, Z? And he was probably like, ah, you know, like he was probably perfectly happy with it. But you weren't because you were looking at it from a different lens as an artist yourself. I mean, I think the family thing didn't really bug him too much. Uh, I think eventually he was okay with it. I think I think the bigger thing was just getting him more stop backseat directing. Like again, cause this <laughs> is also yeah, it's a documentary, so there are no second takes. Right. Uh, so as I'm doing this, it's all spur of the moment. I have to figure out my shot as things are happening. Uh, even when we're doing the sit down interviews, you know, I try to make it look like there's two cameras. That's just because I'm constantly moving my camera around, going to different position to fool the audience a little bit. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, no, like, he he even was a little bit of a backseat director here and there. Like he'd be like, oh, you know, you haven't gotten this shot yet. I really think you should get this shot. I'm like, I don't want that shot. It's not a good idea. He's like, no, no, you, you should get this. And it it never worked. It usually wasn't terrible. I, he had good. He actually did have some good ideas for filming, but if he was calling shots and things, they weren't what I was looking for, I guess, because it was, wasn't my style. It was what he wanted. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, when he finally saw the final product, he was very happy with it. Um, we had a test screening in his neighborhood, in fact, uh, with a pretty packed house as well. And uh, he cried at the end of the screening. He was like, you know, this, uh, he, he was very happy about it. Uh, of course, once everybody left, he's like, yeah, we're going to talk some more about a few of the things there, but it was really good otherwise. So <laughs> that, that was a good start, at least. Well, that that's a step in the right direction. Now, going back to what you were talking about, you know, in terms of filming technique and um, doing a, a one take, so to speak, for, for the documentary, just, just walk us through that then. How did you set the tone initially to film this documentary? I know some people like to storyboard or they like to sketch out or they like to write some sort of an outline, you know, talk, talk me through your process a little bit. Yeah. With documentaries, at least the way I do my documentaries, I really like it to be Veritas to be what's happening in the moment uh, and to be spontaneous. So there's really very little planning. It's generally like I can choose a scenario. So in some cases I have some control. Like for example, if I say we're going to do a sit down interview in a studio, that's easy. Uh, and, and in the case of this entire movie, it's all a natural lighting as well. There's not a single artificial light unless someone turns on a light bulb. Wow, it's all pretty much you know, especially because my uncle he has he's on uh, the eleventh floor of this building he's in, and he has this great bay window, so he gets all this natural light that comes flooding in, uh, especially at three o'clock. That's like the golden hour in his studio. That's when he turns himself on. He says, and it's like amazing lighting. And all, all the people who interview that were in the studio as well, same thing, natural lighting if possible, or if not, whatever lighting they use in their studio. It's just about capturing who they actually are. So in, in that case, it's it's kind of just about making them feel natural and making them feel at home to showcase their environment. Um, but otherwise, it's it's very much just you're making decisions as you go. So I think a good example is we did some filming on the subway. Because one of the things my uncle likes to do is draw people on the subway. That's been a big part of his art for decades. Uh, and so we went with, rather, I went with him on the subway. I keep saying we because I'm like in this mindset of the company. <laughs> of, of course. Of my company, but the company's just me. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, we got onto the subway with him. And it's rush hour. He's going home. So now it's a matter of how do I film this guy drawing showing the environment, showing him drawing, showing what's all these things around him that are happening uh, and still making it look artistic and good while also balancing myself while trying to stand up on a subway and film somebody with a DSLR. Um, so it's just, you know, you have to kind of look around and be observant, use your surroundings. It's a lot of dynamic thinking. It's a lot of problem solving as you go. Uh, some some documentary people will make uh, mood boards, but you can't really storyboard unless you're going to like set up a certain shot, uh, which, which we, you know, it's kind of like, a, um, there's a word for it. Uh, it's a little bit of specialty footage. For example, like if let's say I wanted to have my uncle uh, painting, looking very dramatic in slow mo, like that would be something we'd set up. But uh, and my uncle again, no second takes. You can't really tell him when to paint or whatever to do. So it's all just going, watching him, observing him, 
seeing where I can put my camera without getting in his way and finding the artistic shots that work and are, and look good for a viewer at home. Okay. Now, you know, just to, to backtrack a bit, you're, you're, you're filming on the subway. How did that work? I mean, you know, for, for those of you who are New Yorkers and know the New York city subway system, you know, it's packed. There's a lot of jostling. There's a lot of things you have to deal with. How did you, how did you approach that then? Because, you know, again, you're on there with a, with a DSLR and, you know, you're at the mercy of everything at that point. You know, you, you can't account for, you know, spontaneity is, is a big thing at that point because you might have the guy that wants to break dance on the train or, yeah. you know, all the, cra- all the crazy stuff. You know how it is. Yeah. We were lucky we didn't have any break dancers that day. Um, Good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just one of those things where it's like we have to just kind of look, be aware of what's going on again. It's, it's, it's just decision making as you go and hoping you get the right shot. Uh, in this case, I had to pack very light because I'm shooting on a DSLR. And normally I'd have a tripod or I'd have a monopod. I'd have my mic on it or something. I'd, maybe I'd even have him mic'd up, which in one case, uh, we did a film in Union Square Park one day and he was mic'd up. Nice. Um, with a lav mic. But in this case, we had to make it really natural because uh, again, he had the transfer like one or two times as well. So I don't want to have all this junk in the way. And the big part of it is just being incognito uh, and trying to blend in as much as I could also so that this way people wouldn't be aware I was doing something. Uh, I think that was actually part of the bigger thing to me was just hiding, I guess, in some ways. Right. Because uh, let's say someone sees me filming, they're going to be suddenly self-aware. They're going to want to maybe pose or or start being obnoxious to me or, or him or whatever. Um, so it was more just kind of like moving around constantly, um, just constantly looking. That's really the best thing I could say about it. It was just constantly looking and trying to find shots. Uh, I, I would change lenses here and there as well, which was also really hard to do on a moving subway. Of course. Um, but yeah, just... Yeah, there's, there's one shot I really like, in fact, where uh, he's sitting down and it's he's got a guy next to him as well. So he's like by the subway door and I'm actually shooting through um, the railing on the seats. So it's creating this like really interesting pattern uh, of lines going in different directions. And Hank's face is basically in the middle of where these lines intersect. So it's just really cool. It just naturally worked out that way to look really cool. Um, so that's really just what it is. Just, it's just problem solving, looking around, being aware. Now, you know, you said you, you filmed in Union Square. Um I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, golden hour lighting was, was crucial for that. And again, you know, Union Square, very lively, very, very in, in, interesting. And there's always a, 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 just a variety of different characters there amongst all the people and tourists. So, you know, tell me a little bit about filming for that day. I mean, well, Union Square wasn't really that bad, actually. Like, that was, really? that was funny. Cause again, he was actually mic'd up that day. I had a, the tripod that day as well. Cause I was like, I wanted this to be a little bit more steady. Right. Um, for whatever reason, I guess just because it's New York, people left left me alone. I don't know. Okay. Um, but you know, if you want to talk guerrilla filmmaking, I mean, I I snuck a camera into the hospital for one of the days because he was hospitalized uh, a few times during the shoot, and I decided to visit him one day and film him there, see what that wow. was like. And as most people know, filming in a hospital is pretty much entirely illegal. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I got away with it. Don't uh, tell anybody, folks. No, too late now. They can't <laughs> stop it at this point. I mean, d- filming on the subway is also technically illegal in some ways. Uh, there, there's actually rules about that too. If you're going to be a guerrilla filmmaker, by the way. Uh, people should know that for certain things, uh, permits are required. Yep. For what I was doing, it was okay. Like the, you, you should really know your permit law in case the cop comes up to you and says, "Oh, you can't do something." Because uh, in the case of documentaries, for example, um, there's like a certain amount of equipment you're allowed to have before you have to get a permit, or things like that. Uh, or, or again, certain things just off limits, and it depends who's around. One day, I was actually in Union Square and I was filming at the subway station, which I've done in other stations around just to get B-roll to have. Right. Um, and so I was shooting one of the spots. And I get stopped by an undercover police officer. And uh, that was a little, I was like, I never had that happen before, but they basically said, like, you can't film this. So you got to be really careful. Now, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, it's, it's uh, very important for, 
for people that are you know recording documentaries of their own uh getting into filmmaking um or even just short narrative films too you should be aware of that stuff too where where do people get that sort of information to find out like permit law and stuff like that like for in your case you know obviously being a filmmaker for so long you you know the tricks of the trade but somebody coming in that was interested in doing that you know or filming in their local neighborhood where would they get that info uh, your local state government will have that info because it differs in every single state. Okay. So um, most states that have this kind of thing, there's like going to be some kind of thing for filming or whatever. Um, so, for example, New York has one. I couldn't tell you this off the top of my head. But there's a department specifically for filming, and that's for all types of filming, all types of budgets. Uh, and then I'll tell you what's allowed, what's not allowed. Typically, the minute you have a lot of equipment and there's wires in the ground, that's when you're going to need to have a permit. Um, like in New York, for example, I believe I'm allowed to have a tripod right. that can be set on the ground. And I can have a camera attached to it. But I think the minute I start involving like more microphones and stuff, then it's a problem. Like anytime there's an exposed wire, it's a problem. Uh, anytime there's multiple people on a set, there's a problem. If there's lights out there, uh, if I'm just like guerrilla filmmaking, it's okay. And as long as no one catches you, if someone catches you, then you got to go. And that's happened to you before where uh, I was doing an interview outside one day and um, it was on the grass in this park area, which we thought was okay. Apparently filming in a park is also illegal without a permit. But technically, it actually was legal because I wasn't breaking any laws in terms of the gear or equipment I had. The only thing that was technically legal is that I got caught. <laughs> I see. So, yeah, like, like that's one of the things I kind of learned from doing photography and photojournalism stuff is it's basically only illegal when you get caught. So my advice is generally just, just keep going until someone stops you. And then just, you know, hopefully it's a first time offense. Nothing will come of it. OK. Now, you know, you mentioned that you were you were stopped by an undercover police officer. Um, I'm sure you got the What are you doing? First and foremost, yep. how did you know for, for somebody again, just that was doing that. If they get stopped, do you, how do you approach that? Depends on the officer, I guess in that case, okay. thing, cause I've, I've been, I've been stopped a few times here and there for things uh, for filming stuff, depending on how much equipment you have is a big part of this too. Cause if you're walking around with, you know, if it's just you alone taking photography or taking video, you can probably talk yourself out of a situation. If it's multiple people, you're going to have a harder time. I see. Especially if, you, if you're doing a narrative film where you have actors now or you have a sound person. Like then you're definitely breaking the law and, and you should really figure out what you're doing and get some either figure out another location entirely or get yourself the permit, uh, which is which can be expensive. But again, depends on what you're doing. And if you are a production with actual money, then, yeah, you should get the permit. Um, because in general, if you are working within your state government to film things, there's actually perks as well. Because then if you are, are a film with a budget or whatever you're doing with, with an actual budget, a lot of times they have like tax credits, tax breaks, there's incentives. You can get discounts and things for you and your crew around the city. Uh, businesses will be more friendly to you and give you certain discounts as well. So there's definite perks. But uh, if you're just like myself filming alone, uh, in the case of when I was stopped by the undercover police officer, I just told her I was taking photos because I just have my DSLR, which is one of the reasons I like to shoot with my DSLR is because it's really incognito. It's easier to hide than a camcorder. Right. Uh, so I can just say, oh, I was just taking a photo. No big deal. And that's all that comes out of it. Um, same thing again, like when I was, the other time I was filming outside in the park doing an interview, it was just like, oh, we're just recording something for family. So I guess the best, I, I don't want to tell people to lie, but no, you know, no, bend the course. truth a little bit, I guess, to get yourself out of the situation. They're really not going to check your camera. I mean, I've had situations even where, um, for example, if just so anybody knows, uh, certain parts of Dumbo in New York are also illegal to film at, especially of the bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge. You're really, there's like an area where you're really not allowed to go down into, uh, and they will stop you and kick you out. Generally, they won't take away your memory card or anything like that. Unless you catch a cop in a really bad mood, they're not going to do that to you. Um, so that's really just it is just be ready to defend yourself. And I don't mean physically, but just be ready to have an excuse. <laughs> OK, good. I mean, that's that's definitely something our a, anybody who listens to this that's getting into film will will surely appreciate. Um, 
you know, you, you mentioned you're, you're filming, you're primarily filming with a DSLR. Um, why the DSLR? What, what, is that something you consciously decided to do versus a regular conventional camera? Or do you appreciate the, uh, the simplicity of just being able to have different lenses at your disposal or? So I'm using a Panasonic GH2. That's what I've been using. I actually just upgraded to a GH4 uh, very recently, and I'm going to start using that on other projects now. Uh, and the reason I chose the GH2 and a DSLR in particular was because I do like the ability to change the lenses. I like the lightweight of it. I like that it's pretty easy to travel with and that I can also take my photos and stuff. Um, I found it just to be a really versatile tool in this case. Uh, and again, when you're doing guerrilla shooting, it helps to be able to hide it. <laughs> with a camcorder, especially a higher-end camcorder, you can't hide it as well. If I get caught, again, I can just say I'm taking a photo. Not a big deal. Right. Um, so that's that's one of the big reasons. I just generally like the lenses. I like the look of it. I found it just to be very good. And again, in particular, the GH2, the Panasonic series, all very good cameras. And that's why I'm still sticking in that same family with the Panasonic GH4 now. And hopefully one day I'll get a 5.2 and that drops in price. But uh, There you go. That's, that's how it goes when you're a low-budget filmmaker, too. It's I found that the best thing about it is I can basically spend half the price of a really nice camcorder. Uh, and have the ability to make it look just as good because I can swap out the lenses. Okay. Now, what are your what are your go to lenses? Are you a prime? Do you do you prefer the prime lens, or do you alternate between that and say a kit lens? You like to have a a zoom lens as well. Like, how do you how do you do it? Are you leveraging more so you know your own distance, like getting closer using your feet versus relying on the lens? A little bit of everything. I think a lot of times it's just what the situation calls for. So in the case of Nothing Changes, that was a little bit more of an intimate movie. So I used mostly primes for that one. And I I, uh, I couldn't tell you the exact size, but most of the shooting was the equivalent for a, a non... Uh, I'm, I'm using, it's a mirrorless four-thirds. So uh, this is the standard for if it was just an, an actual DSLR. Um, a 50-millimeter equivalent right. of prime, which was usually my general go-to. Nice and wide. I can get a good look. Nice depth of field. But I also had a really, really nice portrait lens that I guess was closer to like a 90 millimeter maybe okay and that just the depth of field and that's amazing uh, it just looks really smooth and gorgeous and great detail so those were generally the two lenses i used the most uh, if there was a scene where there was more than one person in the room or in a room uh probably still use the prime most cases but uh, if i wanted to make it look at like this more than one camera i'd have uh, a zoom lens which was usually like the uh, i think it was like an 18 to 34 millimeter i want to say uh, and that was just good because i can zoom in i can zoom out and a big part of it is fooling the audience to make them think I have more than one person filming in there. So gotcha. being able to change how it looks every time is very helpful for that effect. Okay. Now, in terms of audio, I mean, you know, I've, you know, I've known Matt some, for quite some time and he's, he's done some other documentaries I, you know, I checked out and, um, you know, how, how does, how does your audio situation work? I know some people like to have, you know, in-camera audio or external recording devices and then, you know, sync and post. And this is like my big tip for people, I think. And a lot of video people argue with this as well, but I believe you should have two sources of audio all the time. So I have my shotgun mic on my camera if I'm doing something in the environment. And then there's always a backup that's going to go to something else in most cases. Um, if I'm just doing like uh, basically two people in a room, whatever, I'll just use the shotgun. Uh, if I can have somebody holding a boom mic, that's of course preferred. But if you're just by yourself, you got to make do what you have. And that's going to just be a shotgun mic. But if I'm doing sit-down interviews, I'll have the shotgun mic on the camera, and then I'll also have the subject wearing a lavalier mic, and that'll be attached or connected to a recording device, which is, I think, I have a Zoom H4NR or something like that. And the reason being is that what happens if you're filming and you get some bad audio on your camera? You don't know about it until it's too late. You've just lost that entire shoot. You've lost that entire interview, whatever you're doing. So it's always good to have a second audio source 
just as a backup. Uh, and I've had that happen before where I've had something, I've shot it, uh, I've done an interview, for example, and the lav mic gets a little fuzzy because let's say it was on weird frequency, something got in the way and messed it up. That's now worthless to me. But I have the backup audio, I could still work with that. It's not optimal, but it's still something, and I haven't lost my day entirely. Gotcha. That's that's good to know. I mean, I've you know I've filmed stuff with just you know one you know one audio source, and you know knock on wood, I've been lucky in that in that regard. You know, we talk about gear all the time and technique, so it's always good to to get get a little bit of insight into that just for myself. And a lot of people argue that you know you should just have one source; it's not a big deal. And a lot of guys that use camcorders that will only have one source of audio, and they'll just plug it right into the camera. If you want to take the risk, go ahead. In some cases, it's fine. I think if you're doing something a bit more high profile, uh, you're going to want to have the backup, especially for sit-down interviews and those kinds of things, just to be super duper safe. Would you Would you recommend if somebody wanted a secondary audio source to use, like their phone, for instance? If you have to, do it. I mean, okay. If you're If you're a guerrilla filmmaker like I am, you got to use what you have. I haven't used my phone yet. Not a bad idea though. I'm gonna try it sometime and see how it actually works. Yeah, I've 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 I only asked because from firsthand experience, I used my phone once, and I had an instance where audio was a little loud because it was in a in a convention center. So the phone actually captured the person's audio substantially better, and then we were able to just cut that up and make that the source for for the audio for that video. So that's that's definitely good to know. Yeah, I imagine that's probably really good if you're like doing an interview with a person where maybe you're on camera with them. Uh, if you're doing like something where you're off camera, it might be a little bit harder to like hide the phone somewhere. But that's definitely a good thing. I'm, I'm going to try it sometime. I'm going to steal that from you, Rich. Yeah, it comes it comes in handy. I, I tell you that much. <laughs> um, let's talk editing. Um, you know, a lot of people the they always say that editing ends up being sometimes the most difficult part. Filming is the easy part. Editing is the most difficult because a lot of people. I mean, I'm guilty of it. Also, you you don't know all those nuances, where to cut, how to cut, how to transition correctly. And obviously there's tutorials, there's books, there's there's a million things. Um, I want to get a little bit deeper into your process because that's one thing I, I like, especially with um, yeah, your your Muay Thai video, your documentary. The the cuts for that were really well done. You had really great transitions, which, you know, I was like, wow, these, it works. Oh, thank you. Very seamless. So, you know, I wanted to just kind of get into that a little bit. Well, I think a little bit of that comes down to also, uh, your audio stuff. But I'll talk about that in a second. I think. Uh, for the actual editing part itself, like yeah, that that's definitely rough because you get so much stuff. In the case of what just did, nothing changes. Uh, I had, God, I, I'm trying. I keep telling people I had like ten hours of interview footage with my uncle. I'm positive it was way more than that. Just that's just in the studio alone. We're not talking about in his house or other locations. Um, so the big thing is yeah, trying to whittle it down. For example, I think the first cut was two and a half hours. Wow. And I was like, this is not going to be Homer's Odyssey. This thing's got to get cut down hard. So. Uh, out of how many hours of video did you get that two and a half out of 10? God. Uh, <laughs> I mean, 10 would be an understatement again because there was so much interview right. footage. Uh, I had a lot of him working as well, all of his friends as well. Because you have to remember, too, there's also uh, his friends talking. Those are usually you know, an hour to two hours in some cases, each person talking, uh, as well as other other things we did, too. So, yeah, there, there was you know, easily 60 hours probably footage total, I imagine. Wow. And that includes B-roll also, right? Oh, no, I didn't include that. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, you know... um. I'll, I'll I'll get into the B-roll in a second. So let's say, you know, 60 hours and you got to edit that down to, you know, that. How do, how do you work that process? Um, first off, what are you, know, are, are you editing on Mac or PC? So I'm working on Mac and uh, I used to be a Final Cut guy. Now I'm a Premiere guy. Wow. Yeah, I actually, I learned how to edit using Final Cut back before it was X and the X transition happened. And I did Girl Fight and Muay Thai Story with Final Cut Pro X. It was okay, but it felt like things were lacking. It gave me some problems. It was a little clunky to use. 
Uh, and I started using Premiere actually at a job I got. I didn't know how to use it. I was just like, oh, yeah, I can use it. It's fine. And that's how <laughs> I learned how to use it, basically. And again, through more online tutorials and, and things like that. And I found Premiere so much better to use because I've got a lot more control. It's intermixable with Photoshop, Illustrator, After Effects, which is, of course, very crucial to have. Um, it's just Why so- is that? Because you can easily do a lot of video effects with that, too. You can do your special effects. You can do your lower thirds. You can do graphics. And granted, there's a lot of things you can do in just Premiere itself. It's very powerful on its own. But if you know how to use After Effects, you now have a whole bunch of new things open. A lot of great stuff you can do in that program. Uh, I want to actually learn a lot more with it because it's, it's really great to know. Um, but yeah, I'm, now, I'm a Premiere dude, uh, and that's on a Mac. And uh, it's just so nice. <laughs> it, it flows. It's very intuitive to use, too. Like If you know how to use Photoshop or any of those programs... They just feel intuitive. Like, like it's all in the family. You, you know, you press the one button and it's like the same thing in all the programs. It's, gotcha. it just feels right. Okay. Are you a, um, you know, and this, and this is a, a weird question, but some people always like to know this stuff. Do you feel more at ease editing, uh, using a mouse or are you a shortcut editor? Um, mostly mouse, but I'm getting better at the shortcuts. Uh-huh. I know some people use trackpads also, which uh-huh. I, I can't touch those yet. Um, I have a lot of friends who just use keyboards as well. And, and, I'd like to be able to do that at some point because it's really useful to be able to do that. Yep. Uh, it's really, it, it, I've seen people that know how to do it. It's so fast when you're, when you're a pro at it. For every reason, they just know how to go boom, 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 and it's done. It's amazing. Yeah, so I'm learning like Premiere, and you had told me about the, you know, start learning some keyboard shortcuts a little yeah. bit just to, to get comfortable with it. So I've been using them, and, you know, it definitely, I, I, you were right. You yeah. know, it helps. And it's not even that many you need to know to really honestly speed up your, your stuff. You only need to know probably about 10. If even 10, and you'll just be amazed that, at how quick that will even help you. Oh, that Razor Tool keyboard shortcut. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And markers. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> those are, those are definitely two. So, um, all right. So you use, you use Premiere and I'm sure you, you go, you drop all your footage in there at once, right? And then you kind of just level it out or do you, uh, compartmentalize it and do, you know, uh, the first part, second part? How do you structure? Well, the way I, I usually edit is, uh, I will have my project open. I'll have different, bins and such and I, I usually edit immediately after i shoot something too even if i don't use it i'm just gonna still edit it and start editing it and also um just kind of kind of collect it i guess and cult- cultivate it um so for example like you know i had let's say 10 hours of interviews with hank and i would have a big old timeline with all the interviews in there i just plop everything in there one big timeline and then i'd start watching the videos and i'd go through every single video and i'd start cutting things out like i'd say okay i'd ask him a question about let's say family and i'd cut that out and I put it into another uh, sequence labeled family. And so I'd start organizing that way. Because again, like throughout these interviews, I'd ask him sometimes things, uh, the same thing more than once, or sometimes he'd answer me with the same thing again and again. So I'd have basically like probably close to 20-ish different sequences where I'd pull different sound bites out and put them into those. And in this way, when I want to do a segment later with them, I know where to look to find all those, and I can just then start cutting that down. Okay. And again, same thing I did that with uh, all the interviews that were supplemental with all of his friends. So I'd be asking generally similar questions to all of his friends. So I'd pull out, you know, here's the question about uh, his subway sketches. Here's the question about his etchings. And I have different sequences for all these answers. And that's why I'd start cutting them apart, making them mingle together, uh, and make them kind of sound like a seamless conversation where it's like you have eight different people, but they're all talking about the same thing. And they're all talking in a sequence that makes sense. So that's usually how I'd approach it for interviews. Right. For B-roll and other sequences, uh, again, it's just... I, I don't like to actually lay things out on timeline. Some people will take all their B-roll and they'll put it into the timeline, just go through it that way. I don't really do that for some reason. I, I kind of just go into it with the small thumbnails in Premiere and just look at it on the second screen. Um, and I just pull whatever I feel like. I, I Usually I'll make a select sequence. I should say that actually. Uh, so I'll find like the things that I like the way they look 
and I'll throw them into a sequence for, let's say, painting or whatever, drawing, whatever it's going to be. And then when I need some B-roll, I'll go check back in on that and see what I want to pull. Okay. Now, you know, walking us through that process, are you also um, doing your audio editing within Premiere or are you using um, like Adobe Audition and then using that to clean it up and then putting it back in there? I haven't used Audition yet. Actually, I really should. Like in the past, I've hired mixers for things because uh, audio is like one of my biggest weaknesses. Okay. Uh, you know, with, with Girl Fight especially, like that was such a mess with audio. I had no idea what I was doing. And I hired a really good mixer that helped fix a lot of the problems. Uh, and currently right now, we're still having a few audio problems here and there. And nothing changes, which we're, we're, it's going to be fixed by the time we have the next screening, actually. Um, Audition would be great. So, uh, But again, since this one of my weaknesses and I'm, I'm better at doing some other things. You outsource. Uh, yeah, it's one of those times where it's time to outsource. And again, in this case of, of this movie, I've gotten way better with my knowledge of audio. So it hasn't been a big problem. But uh, in general, I'm kind of of the belief that you can do as much as you can on your own. But at some point, you do got to bring in someone else to help you out. And audio is one of those things for me. How do you how do you select or or go through the process of vetting someone to do your your audio editing? Do you go by word of mouth? Do you uh, you know work in any sort of forums? Go through that way, vet people that way. How does that work? In the past, I, I've usually start by asking people who they know, and that's been a good starting point. But again, when you're a guerrilla filmmaker with budget of zero, uh, you know it's unfortunate you can't really hire necessarily the best guys. You got to take some chances, take some risks. Uh, in the case of what I do with Girl Fight and Muay Thai Story, I think I'd found somebody on one of those freelancing sites. I put a bid out, saw some samples, whatever, talked prices, uh, and just basically tried to find a person that, you know, not necessarily was the cheapest because you don't want to always go with the cheapest. I found someone that was a fair price, but who I would think would actually get the project and really be excited about it uh, to be willing to work at a lower price in this case. Uh, and also just someone who had, like, I guess experiences that I thought were, were pertinent to what I was doing. So in the case of Girl Fight, it was someone who maybe knew a little bit of fight audio or just... Who knew how to clean up really messy situations with audio? Because that was gotcha. a big thing, especially in that movie. Because you know we'd have scenes where it's super crowded, and I'm trying to film someone's audio of uh, them cornering a fighter. And yep. If you've ever been to a fight or even watched a fight on TV, you know how loud audiences can get, and you're trying to film two people in a room full of yeah, isolation. For that was really good. That was not easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I. You know, it's funny because um, it's funny you mentioned that because seeing seeing that and knowing you personally now, you know, when I watch like MMA fights or or things like that, and I see them do the corner audio. I say to myself, man, you know, even in that, even in that context, it's not like the camera, you know, the filmmaker is directly in the cage to get it. Or if they are, it's, you know, you got to get in there, you get what, 30 seconds and you got to get out. And for it to be so clear, especially for live broadcasts, yeah, you know, I yeah. have a, definitely a, an appreciation for, for the work you put in, in uh, Girl Fight a Muay Thai Story for that. And that wasn't even really even, you know, the good quality equipment either. Again, that was just a shotgun mic and me getting as close as I could without getting in their way. <laughs> And then just having a good post mixer uh, in the case of like, you know, let's say the UFC, like they have some high tech stuff. They got the good stuff because they know it's an important sound to get uh, in the case of the UFC. I think all of their corner men are mic'd up as well now. Ah, and I think, I think okay. it's the same with boxing now, too. But I know for the, with the UFC for sure, like most of their guys have wireless mics uh, and anytime they're in the corner as well, I think they have a boom mic overhead as well. Uh, but generally, you're usually hearing the coach's audio and they're mic'd up with a really good lav mics. That's why it just sounds usually so crystal clear. But otherwise, yeah. it should sound like nothing. Right. That Well, that's that's good to know. Nice, nice little uh, peek behind the curtain with that. So, you know, you know, we've gone through the process, the editing. Now, in terms of preparation for distribution, how's your how's your process? What are your what are some things you go through for, for preparation? Well, at this point uh, with, with Girl Fight, that was self-distributed. So uh, that was getting on Amazon. Right. On Prime. Um, 
how long does a process like that take using Amazon as the example usually? Amazon is actually pretty quick. Okay. Uh, Amazon was not too bad. You basically just have to meet certain criteria for them to get on there. And that's generally like having a certain uh, movie format, having the certain photo specs, whatever. Uh, they like pretty much all these places. They let you know what they need. And okay. It's up to you now to get that stuff done, which is never anything out of the ordinary. Uh, Amazon, for example, requires subtitles. Okay. Whereas some other ones don't, but generally, like Amazon does, Netflix, Hulu, all require subtitles. Uh, so you have to get those made as well. Um, with with Netflix and Hulu, for example, I'm not on those yet at this point. I'm hoping that nothing changes. We'll get a deal with them. Um, I went through Disturber initially because in most cases, if you don't have an agent or a manager, you're kind of on your own. Right. Uh, so you can get services like Disturber to help you get your things sold. Uh, I had a real nightmare with Disturber, unfortunately. So um, it's tough for me to actually recommend them. <laughs> right. You know, like Disturber says uh, that it'll take them you know, two months or maybe at most three months to get your stuff either accepted or rejected. I waited 13 months. Wow. And yeah, it took nine months to get, uh, I think, the rejection from, I think it was, I think it was Hulu. And then I waited under 13 and I never actually got the rejection. I was just tired of waiting. And they kept telling me, oh, we'll have an answer this month. They'll have an answer this month. And I just kept getting pushed back. They eventually admitted that they just didn't bother with me, really. Wonderful. In a really, in a very, in a very polite way, basically. They were like, oh, no, you got lost in the mix or whatever. Oh, and I was, but again, it, with those kinds of services, you pay in advance. And that's wow. and that's how they work because you know you're basically paying. And that's how most these firms will work. If, if you're a movie with a larger budget, you'll hire a firm to take care of this stuff for you. So they'll usually handle things like marketing, PR, and working to get you distribution. Um, so Disturber is kind of like a more and sites like it, like I think Quiver is one of those as well, which I'm going to probably try next time. Um, you know, you pay them a flat rate typically, and they will try to get you the deal. And uh, either they get a cut of it as well once it happens, or it's just a flat rate, whatever it's going to be. Um, so it's kind of you just kind of hope for the best if you don't have an actual team behind you. Uh, if you're like a, a movie with a real budget, like you should totally look into getting proper representation. Uh, and I'm hoping again, that's what's going to happen here. Uh, and that's why film festivals are also still kind of important. Uh, a lot of, there's like kind of a debate now in, in the film community of whether or not film fests are really important to getting a movie seen and getting it recognized and getting it eventually sold and distributed. Uh, and I think it actually is. And, and the reason I say that is because I won an award with girl fight for editing and something. And once you win an award, people start emailing you. <laughs> Right. So, and that's how they find you. They're like, oh, this guy won an award. Maybe his stuff is will be worth you know, getting picked up eventually. So that's how I end up getting some random emails from people, um, not like Disturber, but in a similar vein as Disturber, where they want to distribute your stuff. Right. Where you pay them up front and they'll take care of it. Um, and there are plenty of those out there. They're not scammers. It's just that's kind of just how the business works. Uh, you pay to play. Right. So yeah. Now you know, do you, with with Amazon and Hulu and Netflix just coming to the forefront and helping people get their content out. Do you feel that for for filmmakers, the the not that the 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 challenges are are more prevalent, but do you feel that it's easier to navigate the waters with services like Amazon versus the conventional way of trying to get your film seen? I mean, nowadays you don't even need to have Amazon. If you don't get any distribution from a service, you can always put it on Vimeo and still charge people to see your movie that way and make some money through that. Uh, there's all sorts of alternatives now, but in terms of like Amazon and Netflix and Hulu, like yeah, it's it's. It's great, but with documentaries, for example, I guess even with narratives, it's such a narrow field. Like most of these places are looking for a certain thing. And if you don't really fit that criteria, you're probably not getting in. Like a few years ago, Netflix and Hulu were, I felt a lot broader for their topics. Like you can go on Hulu and find a lot of documentaries about artists, for example. Right. Um, Nowadays, not so much. Amazon Prime, yes, because that's more of a self, you know, starter kind of thing. You can basically go on there, sign up, submit, and as long as you meet the specs, you're in. But with uh, Netflix and Hulu, you have to kind of get approved what they're looking for at that time so uh, in that case you know right now you look at what netflix has in documentaries it's basically 
things about drugs, travel, uh, or celebrities for the most yeah, part. Yeah, there's there's a lot of niches, you know, food, food is another one. Net, food is big on Netflix, food documentaries. That's know. what's funny if you actually look at it. Most of those docs on food aren't even about, they're not even documentaries, they're just shows. Right. That they're passing off as documentaries. Right. It's, 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 it is a documentary style show, but it's not a documentary film. So, yeah, it's Hulu is a little bit better again, but Hulu's a little bit weaker lineup right now. But they used to have, again, actually a lot more art stuff as well. Um, Prime these days has been much better for art stuff. Uh, and in general, Prime and Amazon Prime is just really good because anybody can submit as long as you meet whatever the requirements are uh, for the film, which in most cases is like having a ProRes file, having the art files a certain size. You're good to go. But again, at that point, it's now up to you to advertise. So once you're on Netflix and Hulu, it's very easy to have someone spot your work. There's, you know, X amount of stuff every month that gets added or removed from Netflix and Hulu and right. more sites. So you can just look through it and scroll through and you'll find, you know, the 50 things that they have there. With Amazon, you have so many more things. It's a free-for-all. So you could have, you know, 20, 30 art documentaries that you've never seen. There's, there's all sorts of new stuff there, but it's up to you to now as the filmmaker or to promote it. Um, you know, you bring up, you bring up marketing. Marketing is such a, such a huge buzzword, not only for obviously films, but just in general, everything now is a huge, a huge play for, for marketing and for advertising. I mean, whether you're running a website, a podcast, trying to get a comic book, whatever the case is, marketing has become the name of the game. And now so many people are just doing in like in your case, just being a man or of many hats or a woman of many hats. How does, how do you handle the marketing aspects and you know, what are, what are some of the challenges in regards to that for, for especially for films? I mean, for me personally, like I'm not really that super duper connected on the social media stuff. That's really the big thing is like getting the following. Um, so they say Twitter, obviously Instagram, Facebook, those are really good ways to get things going. You have to kind of be interacting all the time. Um, the tool I've been using the most, and this is very slow, but I think it's actually probably one of the best things you can do uh, is an email list, having a mailing list. Uh, and the reason being is with Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, if you lose your account or something happens on one of those sites, you've lost your outreach. Absolutely. If you have a mailing list, that's permanent. You always have that email. I drop I dropped the ball with the mailing list and I you know it was funny when you you know I'm on your mailing list and I said to myself it's so much easier to be aware of what's going on just because you know you get an email I get an email from you once a week yep. updating on the project and then you know I'm just aware because it's one of those things email you look at it it's there social also you run the risk of you know you're at the risk of the algorithm and you know before you yep, know yep. it it's like hey th- Four people read this, or tomorrow sixty people read this. So why didn't sixty people read the the previous one? Yeah, that's the thing. Like Facebook, for example, uh, you know my my fan page there. It's pretty small right now because not much really happened with it. Um, but I have much more reach on my mailing list. Like I use Mailchimp. Uh, there's a lot of services that you can get for free, and uh, and Mailchimp is one of those that you can use for free or for pay. Uh, but even the free one, it's still very very good. You get to see a lot of statistics and analytics. Um, so I know yeah, you for get two thousand emails on that. I believe something like that. Yeah. yeah. So um, with that, I can basically see how many people are actually opening it. I can see what they're clicking. I can see how many friends they're sending it out to. Uh, and it's great because there's no algorithm. It's just as long as they're aware it's coming to the mail, they know it's there. And if they don't get it, I tell them, hey, is this going to your spam? They find it. They get it out of spam. Now they're going to see it. Um, so with Facebook's algorithms, especially, uh, it's just like no one sees the stuff I'm posting. It's like I'm lucky if four people see a thing I'm posting. Yep. You got to pay to play in, yep. in the Facebook space. Like and Facebook isn't worth it, to be honest. It's really not because. The way I'm kind of working it is as a, kind of like the term is a sales funnel. So I'm trying to basically generate the sale and that sale, right. it takes a while to trickle down. Uh, so with the mailing list, I'm getting a lot more success 
because it's a lot more interactive. Uh, people always will check their email. They're not going to really ignore it as much because there's no algorithms. Right. Uh, and I can really directly communicate with more than 140 characters with a person too. Yes. Um, you know, for example, on Twitter, it's cool. I can send things out, but it's still pretty limiting to what I can say. In an email, I can say as much as I want to say. I can put all the links in there. I can have all the sales I want to get or, or direct people wherever I want, want them to go to. So like, let's say, for example, right now, my big thing is selling tickets to film festivals because I want to pack the house. Uh, and I could basically send that link out multiple times a week. I know people are seeing it. I know people are clicking it. And that mailing list has been growing because people will send it to their friends. They'll say, hey, you want to come see this movie with me in a few weeks? Yeah, all right. And then they come. Or better yet, because that mailing list has a subscribe button on the bottom of it, they'll subscribe to the mailing list. And I've had some success with that. Uh, if I go to film festivals, of course, I'm collecting cards and they're getting added to the list. Right. Uh, or I'm bringing out a piece of paper and saying, hey, sign up on the list. That's work too. <laughs> so it's basically, it's always been growing. Uh, I haven't really lost that many people either. And if some people don't open it, it's still not a big deal because the percentage of people opening it versus not opening it as compared to Facebook seeing versus not seeing on that site, it's like monumental how, how big the difference is. Like, gotcha. I know for a fact, like generally, I'd say probably like a third of my list is definitely opening the emails. That's again, way better than what Facebook's doing. <laughs> nice. I, you know, I, I signed up, you know, it's something that for, for my content that I, like I said, I've dropped the ball on email and now I'm trying to go, you know, kind of, it's like the, the uphill climb now to try and get yep. people to sign up for email. So, it, you know, you've, you've given me a lot of inspiration to really go back and rethink my approach for that. Because again, the emails, you know, and I tell this to anybody who's a content creator, the email list is so crucial. People, you know, there was a point where an email was the big driver. You know, yep. everybody was was leveraging email and then social came into the play and everybody leveraged social. You know, I've had success with social media for uh, a variety of reasons. But again, you got to figure out the way to work the system. And then you got to, you know, with Facebook, their data is so granular and you can go so deep that, you know, you can target something to, you know, Midwest 35 to 40 year old women and, you know, that that only like to watch Ellen and Family Guy, you know, yeah. like that's how that's how insane it is. And and it's good. But to, to your point, you got to you got to pay to play to get that message out there. And sometimes it's, you know, for struggling filmmaker, that's not the name yep. of the game. I mean, it basically it, it is pay to play. And if you want to get seen and more so if you want to actually sell whatever your product is, whether it's a movie or a web show or whatever you're doing, most places kind of want you to have a following already. Right. They want you to kind of do the work for them. Yep. Uh, so. An email list, I, I believe, really, it's, it's gotten overlooked because of social media, but it's still the strongest tool out there. Because uh, generally, you know, if you're good at writing an email, you're good at writing a headline or whatever to get someone to open up that email. Like Once they open up the email, they're, they're in. That's all you have to do. Uh, and, and it's something they're always going to look forward to. They're going to always want to check out in most cases. It's very powerful, and people really shouldn't forget just how good it still is. And, yeah, and, and to be honest, like, if, if anybody out there wants to actually start their mailing list, the easiest way to get started is just ask your friends for their emails. Just get them on your list first. And then start doing your emails. I mean, my, my first probably four or five emails had nothing to do with anything I was trying to sell yet. It was just basically testing the writing, testing Introducting. Like open things. Yeah, I, in my introducing, case. I should say introducing yourself and your yeah, brand. and Not even myself, in fact. In the beginning, what I found was actually really effective was just history. So I. Yes, that's yeah, right. There were some remember. that you put little nuggets of, of information in there. Um, there was actually one which was very interesting about just documentaries in general where you gave like a little a little brief breakdown of documentaries and i was like oh look at that i learned something new and again i opened it and you, you remembered know? it too and that's yeah. important you're remembering it and you're associating it with my brand and myself right. so there you go and then from there you can build your list through other ways you know if you have your if you're going to events and you're networking with people they get on the list uh you know things like that you can build it up really quickly and the best thing is you will be interacting in a much broader bigger way 
Right. Uh, and again, number one thing too is like if someone responds to that email, you write back to them as well. So they know you're a person. They know it's not just some fake list. Yep. It's not just spam. You're going to really talk to them and interact with them and give them attention. Yeah. And, that, en- that engagement is, is definitely key. I mean, you know, you've been, you've been doing this for quite some time and, you know, it, it's been carrying over into your other brands. I just you wish know. I started this mail list sooner too, honestly, but you know, I only started, I guess, probably a few months ago and it's, it's been effective. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, at the start of the interview, you know, a lot of the stuff translates into, you know, your work with Nerd News Today. Also, you know, just you're watching you film a lot of your product videos, a lot of your event coverage. You know, we see that technique at work. And um, do you feel that your your work in film has helped you hone content creation for your other brand as well? Or is it the other way around where, you know, doing the smaller, you know, less intensive videos have made your documentaries um you know easier to work with i think getting the experience with like more professional people has been the biggest help okay um if you basically i got really lucky so i was able to work with some pretty good companies uh, i was able to work with some companies did things for spike tv so i got to work with some really great producers and editors and see how they make things and understand more how they make their decisions because uh, i think a big thing with editing too is people kind of get stuck on certain things they get married to b-roll footage they put too much of it in or maybe it goes on too long um, or in the cases of cuts, they don't quite know when to cut. They don't know how to match a cut or do a proper, I guess, you know, sequence to make it look seamless like we were talking about before. Right. Uh, so I got really lucky to be able to talk to people who knew what they were doing. Uh, and so that's why one of the things I've been learning, especially now for, for the business of film editing and production in general, and I guess it really goes for any job out there you're doing, uh, networking is key. I- I'm quite honestly not too great at it. I'm pretty terrible at it, but I'm working to improve it now. Because um, it's really about, all about who you know. And the more people you know, the more people you can talk to. Of course. And they're going to have things you don't know how to do. And to be honest, that's what you need. Like you need to talk to people who are experienced with what they're doing, see what they're doing, see how they're doing it. And if you don't have that ability to even talk to people yet, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm not too good at this networking thing. Like I was saying, I'm, I'm working on getting better at it. But for the time being, if I can't do that, there's so much out there on YouTube. And I'm not just talking about, you know, like whatever, uh, you know, maybe watching a video essay or just watching a certain particular person. You can just watch videos or you can just go on Netflix or Amazon prime and just watch a really good movie and watch a good documentary and ask yourself, why did that scene work? Or why didn't it work? Right. And that's a really great tool, too. And again, there are plenty of really good video essays out there. And I like to watch those a lot. Um, but you can just watch a really good movie by Steven Spielberg. And you know, and that's where you should start. Start with the classics. And just be like, why is this so good? What makes it work? And just start breaking it down. And it'll be good to know how to break it down and analyze it. Because then you could put it into your own work. Well, you know, it's good that you mentioned that. And it's actually a great segue. You know, in terms of preparation, inspiration, um, you know, things where you draw from, what are, what are some, you know, books or films that you might want to recommend to, to, to a filmmaker or to just a content creator at this point? Because nowadays, even those of us that, you know, film YouTube or vlogs or anything else, it's still filming. There's still technique involved. So what are, what are some things you can recommend that people look at or resources? I mean, I'm probably like one of the worst people to ask about these things. Cause a lot of what I've been doing has been like intuitive, right? But I guess in most cases, just cause I've, I've watched other things I like and, in terms of like documentary filmmaking, I think it's been, and I don't want to, I definitely don't want to make myself sound like I'm some pretentious, lofty snob, whatever. Oh, no, of course. But I, I, I feel like I've learned more from watching non documentary films than okay. I have documentary films. Um, so most cases, they're kind of straightforward. It's not, there's definitely an art to the edit of those, I believe, more so than in a lot of cases, the filming. Because generally, I don't, I don't really like documentaries that have like specialty footage where it's like the slow mo shot of the guy walking down the street that they clearly set up. Right. I don't believe that's real. And it's not because okay. they had to set it up. Gotcha. So I like to see things where it is spur of the moment and they have to make do what they have and make it look amazing. Um, so for me, that's been just kind of watching other films. 
I like watching Akira Kurosawa a lot. Okay. Because that's a guy that actually uses a lot of natural elements in his films. Seven Samurai. Yes. Yeah, we're going way back here. And, and he's like great for it because like, again, I, I, with nothing changes, uh, natural lighting was a very big part of it. And that means sunlight or whatever's in the room. Uh, with Akira Kurosawa films, natural elements were always a very, very important part of every film he did. Uh, you could watch any of those movies he's done ever, any of the black and white ones or any color ones, whatever one doesn't matter. And you'll see weather is a big, big thing. And there's, yes. there's a great video essay. In fact, people can watch on YouTube about this. Um, I don't remember the name of the guy, but you can look it up and you'll find it very easily. But he'll use weather as a tool to create tension in scenes or to create the mood or the atmosphere. Uh, like rain, for example, it can be very soft or it can be very hard and dangerous. Right. Uh, so things like that. It's like things you can't control so that you can make work with your scene. Okay. I think to me, that's kind of interesting. And that's something worth looking at because that's problem solving. And if you're doing doc work, you have to problem solve on the fly. Right. Uh, in terms of like other movies as well. Uh, I, I just like, I, I should say it too. I like to read a lot of comics also. And that's kind of been my thing is um, Larry Hama said a thing once where it was every panel you do should look different because that's visually attractive. So he'll always, you know, have the panels. He'll go from wide to tight to medium, back to tight to wide to another angle or whatever. And it's not just making angles for the sake of angles either. It's figuring out what's going to make the story flow or make the sequence flow in that particular case. But yeah, like you should always have every shot look different uh, and, and be dynamic and this way, visually, you're going to keep them engaged and coming back to see what's going to be the next shot. And you kind of want to surprise them. It, it's it's kind of like, you know, a good song. You hear lyrics that, like, you don't really know what's going to happen next. It right. surprises you what they say. Right. It sticks with you. Right. And, and the rhythm important. sticks with you also. The rhythm keeps you glued into it. Cause that's, that's the rhythm of the piece. It's going to keep you flowing. But it's the surprise lyric that makes you think and makes you say something and react or have the feeling. Okay. Now, you know, uh, definitely want to get into a, a couple of rapid fire things. So I'll start with one of the you know, a couple of rapid fire questions to wrap things up. But uh, first one's easy. What's favorite documentary mm, that you think that'd be easy, right? But no, uh, <laughs> uh, I really like cutie and the boxer. I don't know if that's quite the favorite, but that's one of the ones I like to watch a lot. And that was a little bit of an inspiration to help me with nothing changes. Cause that's a documentary about an artist. Uh, he's a Japanese artist. He was, uh, okay, it was Ushio. I can't remember the whole name. I'm so sorry right now. Um, but it's, it's a really great documentary. What I liked about it, uh, was how it was shot, how good it looked, and the fact that it's a documentary about an artist, but it has a narrative within it. And that's something I really like to have in my docs is there should be a narrative flow to them as well. Like, I don't just like making informational pieces. Uh, and like one of the next projects I'm working on will be a little bit more informational, but I still want it to have a narrative flow so that there's characters. You want to tell a story. There's, yeah, there's some kind of, there's some kind of meaning to the story and there's some kind of now, uh, I, I guess, meaning to the history and the information we're giving you guys. So, uh, Cutie and the Boxer is a real favorite. I also like Jiro Dreams of Sushi. That's a fun that, one too. A, everybody everybody great knows one. that one. That's easy. That's to a find. great one. You know, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, going a little real world. Uh, you know, my my day job, the the CEO goes, yeah, I watched this documentary, and I'm like, and as he's talking about this restaurant, and I go, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, like in the middle <laughs> of the call, and everybody's just like, you know, he's just kind of taking it back, and I'm like, yeah, I've seen it more <laughs> than more than once. And he was like, oh, okay, and you know, it, it's funny that everybody kind of just throws that one out there i always feel though that what happens is and maybe you'll agree with this or maybe not that people try to grab that documentary and kind of craft their own meaning from it instead of just letting the narrative play out like people are like oh well you know it's all about dedication and honing your craft and you know blah 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 and it's just like it's about one guy's love of food and the dedication that he applied to becoming a master at that one craft like there's a lot. In that. There's also a lot to the documentary too, though, which is what's so fun about it is that there is meaning within meanings. There's multiple yep. ways for you to enjoy it. In the case of Jiro too, there's also the story of his son. 
yep. like his, who they say is actually better than him, maybe. And it's kind of like he's living in the shadows. There's that part of it too. Like there's a lot you can pull from it. That's why it's so good. There's so much going on. There's so many layers to it. And I think that's what a good doc has. Um, I, in terms of other docs, I like to just let you guys know. I, I also recommend watching Iris. I really enjoyed Iris, which uh, is a, a doc about Iris Apfel, who is a fashion icon. And I'm not into fashion at all, um, but it was just, it, it was, was very just interesting. Wild, very good. Yeah. It, and it was also, uh, one of, I think it was Robert Maisel's last documentary before he passed away. Okay. Which was a big deal. Cause I, Iris still alive. She's actually going to get her own Barbie doll, which oh, is amazing. That's, cool. <laughs> that's a pretty big deal. Uh, and she's like 90 something now and she's still doing her fashion stuff, still touring. She's got more followers in social media than most people wish they had. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> insane how great she is. Uh, so that was a really, really fun one. Uh, if you want to go back in time a little bit too, this is a long doc, but worth watching, uh, Woodstock. And I think, in fact, you probably remember one of my mailers was about that's that right. doc. Yeah. That's a really great documentary about the very first Woodstock concert. And it was really innovative at the time, too. There's like a lot of split screen stuff going on in that doc where they're basically showing uh, just it, it's kind of like they, they show the concert. They show a lot of the concert and you're getting all those great performances of all those amazing artists from that era. But you're also getting the people at the time. You're getting the hippies, all the rock people, the drug people, <laughs> the crazy performance art people. And you're getting the locals of the town also. And that's interesting to see like the, the juxtaposition of these people. And it's, it's a real slice of life. It's real interesting just to see that. Um, and if, at the very least, if you watch it, just watch it for the performances because that alone is gold. Nice. All right. Now, um, you know, delving, uh, delving a little more in there, maybe. Should I, should I throw one more in there? I got a good one. No, I mean, you could throw one more in there. Okay. Oh, I can't remember the name of it again. Damn it. <laughs> oh, God. Fightville. I think that's Fightville. All right. I'm going to throw this one in there. All right. All right. Uh, another good one I like too, because I'm an MMA fight guy. Uh, you know, like Smashing Machine was probably one of the first docs I ever saw. Love that. That's a great one, and uh, that was real seminal to me learning about docs before I was even interested in filmmaking. But uh, the real one I, I like much, much more. And I recommend is Fightville, uh, which follows follows a few different fighters in that one. Uh, one of them being Dustin Poirier, UFC guy. Yep. Uh, and I found that just to be just an amazing doc in general. Even if you're not a fight fan, uh, very captivating, really well shot, great stuff. Nice. All right. Now, you know, with your work on, on Nerd News Today, for those of you that don't know, it's a uh, a think tank of geeky awesomeness. Um, you know, you you're you're big into Star Trek and yep. into Star Trek toys. Um, what other what other toys or collectibles are you are on your radar that you're obsessing over? Yeah, well, Star Trek right now is the big thing. So we have our Trek Back Tuesday series um, and some big stuff's going to be happening on that soon. Uh, but we won't say about that. It's going to be a surprise. But nice. Uh, yeah, I'm also pretty big on, on a lot of the wrestling figures. Uh, okay. So a lot of the, the WWE figures from Mattel, uh, especially they have this new line, which is kind of in the vein of the Hasbro figures. You remember those from when we, you know, we were growing up in the 80s and 90s? That's right. So those are really, really great. I love those figures. Um, and Mattel, just in general, they're really doing great work with the WWE license. Um, but I'm really into a lot more of the retro stuff. And there's a lot of toys I wish I could be buying more of, but, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty expensive. Uh, I think one of the lines I'm really into is Exo Squad. I wish I had more of those. Nice. Uh, real Ghostbusters. Again, the WWF Hasbro figures. Um, all the, all those sorts of things. Uh, I, we were just talking before about Transformers. <laughs> and I'd love to get some more of those, uh, Takara Transformers, the Masterpiece series. But those things are mad money. So, yeah. uh, not anytime soon because I got to buy camera equipment. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, one of those things with, with that stuff, especially when, when it comes to collectibles, you kind of just go down the rabbit hole. So I, I, I'm definitely with you there. Um, I did want to th- talk about a, a question that I, that I like to ask people, especially in your case. It's, it's great just to get a little bit of insight. So you had a, 
you had a hundred bucks, what was the last piece of of equipment that you bought that was less than a hundred dollars that just made your filmmaking easier or just your day to day easier? I mean, I just had an enormous splurge on gear, uh, <laughs> and you know about that. Yep, you helped me out figuring a lot of that stuff out. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, man, I think honestly, <clears throat> again, under a hundred though. So. I know you bought some pricey stuff. I bought some pricey about. stuff. Yep. Um, yeah, but I think probably the best thing was actually uh, there's a few things I think I'd recommend. Uh, you recommended to me, in fact, uh, these set of lights I used, which were I think thirty bucks, and they came with the light stand as well. And they I couldn't tell you what they were. Rich, you probably know what they are. Yeah, uh, I think I, <laughs> I they were they were the um the LED yep. lights. Really great LED lights. Uh, battery power isn't the best, but they get the job done, especially if I'm out in the field. I can use them in the studio as well. Again, they only last for about two, maybe two and a half hours, I think, of, of good hard use. That's still pretty good. I mean, that's fine for most things. Nice. You can always buy more batteries. Um, I think also, believe it or not, I, I got a bunch of clamps. And <laughs> this might sound silly, but I'm doing some stuff now with uh, backdrops. And those clamps, man, they make a big difference in flattening out your screens. That it, It's funny. A buddy of mine, we were talking about something, and he was like, you know what, 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 what I love to buy that people don't realize is valuable? And I'm like, what? And he's like, gaffer tape. Oh yeah, gaffer tape is great. Exactly, gotta have so, a gaffer tape. Yeah, so so it's funny, you know, that when when I ask people about you know something less than a hundred dollars that they've bought, it's like you know you'd be surprised what they get. But I'm but I'm glad the lighting definitely has been helping you out. Lighting is good, and gaffing tape is good, and uh, clamps are always handy for everything. <laughs> yeah, clamps definitely. I have some clamps that I use for headphone stands. I use them to you know prop up certain figures when i have to take yep. photos and videos so yeah clamps are very underrated i was talking little you know like the black plastic ones with the orange tips they come in different sizes i got a six pack uh, rich has just procured one right now from his desk that's the exact one i have in fact yeah, uh, yeah i got like a six pack for like five dollars and that thing's great to put on like a c-stand or whatever you're going to use it with they're, they're just always handy to have you never know when you're going to need it i usually i usually like to ask people about uh you know websites they visit on the daily i did want to ask um as a filmmaker, how do you feel about a uh, IMDb, for instance? Do you feel it's valuable? Do you feel that it's become too inundated with, you know, um, giving people just useless tidbits of information and not just being a repository for their work? I think it's how you use IMDb because uh, there is the IMDb Pro, which you right. have to pay to get in there. Yep. If you use that, you got some access now. That's that's probably worth it if you're looking to do stuff, make, yep. make some moves, meet some people, talk to people. Yeah, I've used that before. the the pro The pro version. Yep. It's definitely. A completely a completely different experience. Yeah, that's what makes it worth it. Uh, otherwise, you know, IMDb it's just, it's a great resource for checking credits. I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. But yeah, I, it's always weird. I always look at that. I look at IMDb and and Rotten Tomatoes. You know, everybody all of a sudden is is big on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like Rotten Tomatoes has been around forever. Yeah. All of a sudden now it's a big a big feather in your cap if you're certified fresh, etc. But I figured I'd ask you as a filmmaker just because you know filmmakers. And, and creators view stuff like that very differently you know like i know co- content creators that hate youtube but yeah. know it's a necessary evil to get their work out and wish that somebody else would come along and do something else so i mean personally i don't really care much about meta ratings that kind of thing Cause if i like a movie i'm gonna like it if i don't you know someone's not gonna change my opinion on it really of course uh i prefer i mean i still like to look at rogerebert.com and i like, nice to, I like the Leonard Malton's website as well, and I listen to his podcast. I used to buy Leonard Malton's book. Yeah, I was just gonna say the books. <laughs> if you were an an you're an eighties kid, if you have a Leonard yeah. Malton book, yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, I I used to I used to borrow from the library and just read and read and go through and find some of my favorite movies and 
and read about it. Like that was a thing. And then when I got older and I was in high school, I remember I took a film class in high school and you know, the, the teacher had like a Leonard Malton book and I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, and it, it made, it made the class fun. So it, it's, it's good. It's good to hear that referenced. And he has a very good podcast also, which I really recommend. Nice. I didn't know that. Good yeah, to know. Yeah. Good podcast. I think I spend more time, um, honestly, you know, you're talking about websites and stuff. There's not really a lot I look at these days because a lot of the information I ingest happens via On Facebook social. and social. <laughs> I'm telling so you. I kind of float around. A lot of the sites I used to like are gone now. Um, for whatever reason, just they went away and it's sad, but, uh, I probably spend more time now prowling YouTube. Okay. Uh, and also you're I, not alone. I've, I've realized yeah. <laughs> I've been watching a lot more YouTube lately just to learn stuff, to, to go back to what we were talking about earlier. To, to learn how to use, you know, Premiere and stuff like that. A lot of great teachers, a lot of great stuff. Conversations you and I have, I'll be like, hey, check out this video for this thing. And, yep. you know, it, YouTube has become insane for that. And it's not always that I'm like watching one particular person. Like, usually it's like I put in a topic and I can right. find things. Like, I've been lately trying to learn more about green screening. So I will put that in, I'll find a video I like, and then there's 20 more videos to watch now all of a sudden. Yep, the YouTube the YouTube rabbit hole. Yeah, and, and I'd say I, I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts. Uh, I mentioned Leonard Malton. I really like his podcast a lot. Who else is on your list? Uh, okay, so I think the one, this this is going to probably shock some people, and you're going to want to know why. I really like Gilbert Godfrey's podcast. I like Gilbert Godfrey. Okay, good. There's a lot of people who are like, oh, his voice is so annoying. I thought that way, too. Then I actually listened to the show, and it's like, no, his voice isn't that annoying. Let me tell you. And they're pretty did, damn funny shows. He did a, uh, well, he was one of the guys that told us the, the joke of, um, what the hell is it? Uh, damn it. There's there's a long-standing joke in the comedy community. Aristocrats. The, the aristocrats. Thank you. The aristocrats joke. And I remember a bunch of different guys told the story. And I remember Gilbert Gottfried told the story, and somebody played it. Oh, it was a documentary actually yeah, about that. I was going to say that's the doc about yeah, the aristocrats. And, and he and he's like, let me tell you this story. And I'm just laughing my my ass off because you know the voice that he has, and yeah, you know, especially growing up, 80s, 90s. You know, he voiced Iago the parrot in Aladdin. So yeah. a lot of times I'm watching the documentary and it's one that I always end up watching quite a bit whenever it's on or, or if it's available for streaming. And I just see him telling the story or telling the joke and I see the parrot telling the <laughs> joke. So, you know, it just adds to the comedy. And we should add, if you don't know out there what the aristocrats joke is, uh, look it up if you're 18 or older. Yes. Uh, we're not going to repeat that. All no, there, no, no, but, but, yeah. but, but the funny thing about the aristocrats joke is that you can change it any way yep. you want. So, you know, it can go really, really clean or really, really crass, but most times the crass ones are, are, are the craziest ones. Yeah. So look it up if you dare. Uh, and also in terms of podcasts, uh, not to sound snobby. I, I occasionally check out the New Yorker radio hour. I, okay. used, to, I used to like it a little bit more, but it's not quite as good as it used to be in my opinion right now, but that's just me. Uh, I also really like, uh, LeVar Burton has a podcast series called LeVar Burton Reads. Okay. And that's one of my favorites as well now. It's basically, if you liked Reading Rainbow, if you grew up watching Reading Rainbow, this is now Reading Rainbow for adults. Nice. And it's great because he basically, like, every episode is him reading a short story. And it could be any topic, too. Like, he's he's read things by Neil Gaiman. He's read things, uh, sci-fi, uh, Murakami, all, all sorts of different people. And it's, it's just great. It's, like, a really good thing to listen to on, on a ride home or just whatever you're doing. Because uh, people should, should be reading more anyway. It's really important to be reading. Of course. And if you can't read, you can at least listen to someone <laughs> read for you. There you go. And who doesn't want to hear LeVar Burton? All right. Uh, last one on the on the subject of reading. You know, you talked about comic books earlier. Any comics, graphic novels on your radar that you're reading? You know, there's actually, I want to know what this is about. Dr. Ruth. You know who Dr. Ruth is, right? Of course. Dr. Ruth Vethheimer. Yes. She has a, a graphic novel coming out. 
And I'm really interested in seeing what that's all about. Wow. Yeah. Hell, I'm I'm curious now. Yeah, I want to know what to deal with that. She's going to be at, uh, there's an event in, in at the end of April, a uh, Jewish Comic Con in Brooklyn. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to be going to that. And Dr. Ruth's going to be there to talk about the book. And I just want to know what this thing is about. I mean, I guess it's like an autobiographical. Oh, I'd, lo- I'd love to see you interview her. Oh, well, hopefully that'll happen. We're trying to make that happen. Awesome. I met her once before and, and just, just as a fan, and she was really, really nice. And I've heard good things about yeah, her. Yeah, she seems very pleasant. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, uh, you know, I'm really big in, into Usagi Yojimbo. Yes, and, awesome. Uh, so Dark Horse just essentially relaunched Usagi. Yes, they did. So now, now, I mean, it's never been a bad time to jump into Usagi Yojimbo because it's not that hard to pick up just from any point. But they basically have relaunched with a new number one, so you can just dive in right now. Like now is actually a great time to go ahead and dive into it. Uh, aside from that, I really like the IDW Ghostbusters comics. Those are really good. Those are amazing. Like that's that's the true sequel to Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, and and also from IDW. Uh, I was really big on their G.I. Joe vs. Transformers comics. They did an amazing job with those. I love those. That's kind of, I kind of like reinvigorated my interest in G.I. Joe toys and Transformers toys again, also. It's not for everybody, but for me, I love the look of it. Uh, you know, Tom Scioli, I love his artwork. This got me interested in his artwork as well. Uh, you know, I think had I seen this other stuff, I would have just been like, oh, he's just trying to be a Kirby knockoff. But seeing what he did with the Transformers and the G.I. Joe comic, that, that's, that really solidified him for me. Uh, I also really like, uh, in terms of graphic novels, I can recommend The Fifth Beetle, written that, by that's uh, great. Vivek Tavari. Yep. That's I met him when, when he first launched that. He's a, a yep. super nice guy, super talented. Yeah, I got to interview him at Comic-Con two years ago. Uh, and yeah, really great dude. Uh, and, and that book, too, is well-illustrated, well-written, just top-notch all around. I really like that one. If you're a fan of The Beatles, uh, you want to get this, because it's about The Beatles. It's about yep. their manager. That's right. And he has a very interesting story, and this novel, graphic novel is really cool. There's going to be a TV series based on yeah, the right. they're producing. That's right. So that's really cool. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. There's there's a lot of comics I want to read, but you know <laughs> I can't pick up as much. I used to be picking up Squirrel Girl monthly, but I had to stop because monthlies get to be a little pricey. Absolutely. These yeah. days, they're way too pricey, in my opinion, but I'm yeah. an old man. No, it's all right. I, I had a, a comic book folder for quite some time, and um, you know every week it'd be 70 bucks. I'm like, I can't do this every week. So... um Definitely some good titles there that I will share with our folks. Um, you've given us an amazing insight into the filmmaking process, the gear you use, the, the tech and the toys that you obsess over. Um, where can people find you, keep up with all the work, and um, know about future projects? So you guys can check out Burning Hammer Productions on Facebook, which I believe is just facebook.com slash Productions. If that's too long of a thing for you to type in, we're also on Twitter and Instagram at BurningHammerNY. Uh, that's the best way to see what's up with film festivals and all that stuff. And if you want to get on the mailing list too, because uh, that, that information is always different from what I put actually on, on the website, just send me a message on any of those platforms and I will get you onto that. Uh, and that's probably the best way. And again, you can also check out Amazon Prime if you want to see my last work. There's actually two on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, there's Girl Fight and Muay Thai Story, which we were talking about. Uh, and I also have Concrete and Crash Pads which is about us, the New York City stunt acting community. And that's a docu-short, which some of you guys might find interesting if you want to learn more about what goes on behind the scenes in the stunt acting world, uh, as well as to see how a stunt film gets made. Nice. And also, of course, Nerd News Today, which is on YouTube, Instagram, uh, nerdnewstoday.com. Yep. Yeah, check out yeah, the, the Nerd News Today uh, YouTube page and just give us a sub. Uh, you know, We're, we're going to be doing a lot more stuff. We typically have two videos a week that might be changing very soon to a lot more than two a week. We'll see how things go. We actually went on a little bit of a hiatus after toy fair to kind of regroup and uh, work on some things. And we're about to start picking up business again. And Oh man, we got 
a whole a whole bunch of new video series some new talent as well have joined us so if you're a fan of uh, wrestling figures you might want to come check out the site because that's about to get started uh all sorts of things so yeah please do subscribe if you like anything nerdy we got it ready for you all right so with that that is going to wrap up our toys and tech of the trade with matt kaplowitz matt thank you for taking the time to speak with us and share the toys and tech that help you enjoy your trade. Well, thank you so much, Rich. It was an honor to be on the first show, and I want to hear about your toys next time. You got it. All right, that wraps up our interview with Matt Kaplowitz. There will be links in the show notes for this episode uh, for the documentaries that Matt has worked on, as well as uh, how you can check out Nothing Changes Art for Hank's Sake. We'll try and include some links for that as well. Plus, of course, you will see links for some of the gadgets and gear that Matt shared and the toys that we discussed. Now, those links, just as a disclaimer, are going to more than likely be affiliate links. Of course, nothing uh, you clicking those links does nothing except it allows us to make a small commission from what you purchase and allows us to purchase better equipment and make improvements to the studio to allow us to get better listeners and more content for you the listener so feel free to use those links to purchase any of the items that were discussed in this episode if you're interested in being a guest on a future episode of toys and tech of the trade you can email me rich at rageworks.net if you prefer social media you can find rageworks on instagram at rageworks official rageworks on facebook and rage underscore works on twitter with that said We will see you guys in the next episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade. Peace.